Welcome to episode number 10, Hidden Amongst Us. Today's episode delves into the hidden nature of depression uh, in society in general, but more specifically within the church. Now, I wanted to remind listeners that what I say is certainly my own opinion and not a reflection of any doctrine or principles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, I know that that might be obvious, but still something to be noted and remembered. This last week had me pondering why depression is such a hidden disease among members of the church. Now, with its occurrence rate among the regular population somewhere between 10 and 15 percent, one could assume that the rate among members is about the same, although given the social pressures to be perfect and sometimes difficult, time-consuming assignments and tasks, it wouldn't surprise me if it ran somewhat higher. Given the percentage of those affected with depression, just from the statistics, the disease will be classed probably among the top two illnesses within the church membership. The return rate of young missionaries and missionaries in general would seem to support the idea that depression is one of the most pressing issues facing church membership throughout the world. So the question arises in my mind, why is it so hidden amongst us? If the disease does affect such a large number, and affects such significant numbers of young missionaries, why, is the disease, why isn't the disease more openly discussed? I'm sure there exist many reasonable answers, one of the most prominent being that mental illness still holds a certain stigma about it in our society, meaning that to say one is mentally ill probably conjures more images of straitjackets, rubber rooms, and loony bins. I don't think that the stigma is just among members of the church. Society, of course, has always held a f certain fear of the unknown, and the thought of mental or emotional instability does not bring forth feelings of confidence. We like to believe that, for the most part, we are in control of our bodies and emotional state, or at least we can bring it under some control. So when someone claims they have depression, bipolarity, and other mental and emotional concerns, there is a tendency for those not afflicted to dismiss it, to try to fix it or ignore it. I don't believe that they do it out of any malicious intent or even consciously. I believe that it is simply a reaction built into the systems of the body. When we fear something, we do often dismiss, ignore it, or at least attempt to make sense of it in our own way. So I believe that we have natural defense mechanisms that cause us to react in the ways that we do to mental illness. I also believe there are several other reasons why it remains in the shadows of the foyers of the church. Much of it is to do with cultural traditions of both our heritage and history in the church. Church traditions and heritage grew out of an independent pioneer drive of squaring shoulders and pressing forward, overcoming adversity through faith and hard work. We are taught to be self-sufficient, selfless, and outward focused. Somewhere in that mix of squared shoulders, overcoming adversity, and outward focus has grown traditions that all emotion could be and should be controlled. That emotional well-being is simply a matter of trying a little harder, doing a little more, or just not thinking about it. Now, I don't disagree with the idea of bringing all things under control. However, the tradition leaves little room for genetics and the chemistry of mental illness. Now, having said that, I believe that the membership of the church has come a long way, even in the last decade. But I also know that culture and underlying sentiments are difficult to change. The traditions of the fathers ran strong among the Nephites and Lamanites, and I don't believe that we are any different. We learn the world through our parents, 
and that includes their biases, traditions, understanding of medicine, illnesses, emotions, and so forth. The saying that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree is true in almost every case. We are products of our parents and those who raised us, and that includes the village who raised us. It often takes decades for traditions or knowledge to be accumulated and taught, and just as long to unteach it. In the church, we deal with doctrinal doctrine, principles, and applications that do not specifically mention diseases such as depression. This is not to say that the doctrine does not allow for it. We simply extract from the doctrine our cultural biases and have a tendency to sway our beliefs in a certain way. For instance, one of the main difficulties with the acceptance of depression as a disease is the doctrine of happiness and joy. Scriptures such as wickedness never was happiness in Alma, and men are that they might have joy in Second Nephi, have a tendency to sway our minds and hearts that members of the church who are walking the covenant path should, for the most part, be happy or joyful. This doesn't mean that we don't have bad days, and I think that we find bad days are acceptable. But to think that a disease would contradict the idea that men are that they might have joy is somewhat incomprehensible to our own sensibilities. To say that the Lord desires our happiness and joy and then would allow for a disease to remove that joy and happiness for long periods of time doesn't seem to make sense either rationally, emotionally, or doctrinally, at least as culturally accepted. We have a greater tendency to believe the corollary statement that wickedness is unhappiness and that men who do not have joy are not walking the covenant path. Oh, we don't say those things out loud. But we do inherently believe them, if not overtly, subconsciously. This is especially true for individuals who haven't suffered with the disease. Now, I don't blame anyone who hasn't suffered for not understanding the disease. My wife lived with the illness for more than a decade and still couldn't recognize it in herself. The disease requires experience and understanding. And when we see unhappiness, we assume something is wrong in our loved one's life. And so we go about the process of rescuing that which may not need to be rescued, but simply loved and understood. Sending forth the lifeboats when somebody is not really drowning, or the shepherds to find the little lost lamb who really isn't lost in a spiritual sense, can cause a sense of defensive mistrust and embarrassment to someone who is depressed. The the depressed already feel sufficiently guilty by nature of the disease, and the additional rescue seems only to confirm those guilty feelings. Now, this sentiment has so permeated our understanding in the church that when someone falls ill to the disease, it is very difficult for them to even recognize it for what it is, a disease that controls emotional chemicals in our bodies and alters realities. So so if they find themselves depressed at church, at activities, while reading scriptures, attending the temple, and so forth, they often feel that they need to do more, be more, repent more, accomplish more, that they just aren't walking the pathway correctly, because that is what we are taught. And of course, that is reinforced by every talk and Sunday school lesson and rescue attempt they hear and experience. The more they try, the more difficult it gets, and deeper the depression becomes as anxiety and stress increase. The idea of joy and happiness in church service, activity, and devotion is one of the main principles of living the gospel. Joy is supposed to come from dedicated service. When we hear others talk about it, the scriptures teach about it, but all we feel is darkness, pain, and misery, the tendency is to remove oneself from those places where we feel our souls being torn apart. 
Now, it is not always as difficult as I make it sound to have depression. Some days and weeks are better than others. But hopefully, if you don't suffer, you can understand why people who are depressed have a tendency to be less active, to maybe attend only until the sacrament is served, that why they might shy away from meetings, activities, ministering, and other places where the doctrine of happiness and depression might clash. However, there's something very important to note. There exists an even greater struggle when one completely walks away from the gospel and does not continue to engage in it, even in small ways. The darkness and pain are not going to improve by walking away from the Lord's protection, and it is far more likely that depression and its friend misery will increase. Now, one, now while one may not see the value of those small daily spiritual tasks that they do, they do make a difference. And while they might not increase happiness, they can certainly reduce misery. The, f- the effort towards spiritual things, however, is rewarded, although we may not feel like it. I would liken it to a stormy day where you don't see the sun. Just because the clouds obscure the sun doesn't mean that the rays aren't getting through. To completely walk away subjects those who are depressed to far greater pressures to self-medicate, abusive relationships, suicide, and so forth. Now, during my worst depressions, I really didn't want to attend church and often didn't see the point as I didn't feel much of anything resembling joy or happiness. But I do know that I did fare better fare better in my life when I made the attempt to do what I could. And that meant even small steps, without much desire to walk them. One of the wonderful things that depression has taught me over time is the meaning of joy. We most often associate joy and happiness as having equivalent meanings. I don't believe that this is the case. I believe that happiness is associated more with the physical and emotional well-being of our physical nature, more of the chemistry-induced feelings of well-being, and that joy is more associated with spiritual well-being. While it is very true that depression cuts through both types of well-being, joy and happiness, it has an overwhelming effect upon happiness. Joy can still be felt, albeit sporadically, or like the rays of the sun through the clouds. So while depression can deeply affect our ability to feel happiness, we can, with the help of the Lord, still see joy at times. Yes, the feelings of joy may be filtered and few, but I know that they they can be there, and more especially when we are trying to do what the Lord wants. Now, the underlying traditions of happiness in the church make good sense if you have never experienced depression or other mental illness. Happiness and joy should almost parallel each other. What what needs to be understood is that happiness and joy are two separate types of well-being, and we can feel joy without feeling happiness. Now, how how does this help those with depression? Identifying their concerns with depression as a disease and helping them to see how the disease affects their happiness can ease the difficulty of attending church meetings, lessen discussions on the topic of happiness and the tradition of happiness and joy in the church. Now, this will not make it easy necessarily to attend church, but it does help to understand the nature of the feelings and the why Why can make a significant difference in their overall outlook. Now, we do have other traditions in the church directly related to the idea that everyone needs to be happy or have joy. I would call it the I have to fix it tradition or the unhappiness rescue. Now, this is the idea of someone's unhappy. We need to find out why and fix it. 
I believe it stems from the idea of service and bearing one another's burdens, so I believe its origins to be purely motivated. I have no doubt that many burdens have been lifted and services have been rendered to those suffering. I am not talking about, well, talking about this to fix or cor correct the tradition. But in the case of depression, one needs to approach differently than you would under more normal circumstances. Depression generally can't be approached by the normal I-need-to-fix-it attitude and rescue attempt. Constant visits with spiritual messages adding to an already guilty, depressed conscience and the anxiety to be faced with visits and rescue attempts can feel almost detrimental and hurtful. In fact, most often those who approach it in this way will drive the person further from them. Depression really needs unconditional love and support. Visits are fine, but continuing to remind the individual what they are not doing or how to achieve happiness is not the best method of support. I can tell you that almost every depressed person knows exactly what they are not accomplishing and how unhappy they are, and they review it on a regular and daily basis, meaning that whatever is done to help needs to be a positive attitude and a continuance to love and encouragement. There is no need to remind them that they are not attending church regularly, that scripture reading brings the spirit, or that service is the best medication. I can tell you that if they had the emotional ability to do those things, they would be. The most important thing is to be a friend, meaning encourage them to do those things that would be helpful to the disease. Encouragement can be difficult waters to manage. While it is not helpful to continually remind someone that living the gospel brings happiness, Getting them out for a walk or lunch and just talking may be helpful. Sending them a note, a loving note, that you are thinking about them or their favorite food can make a significant difference. Now, while they may not respond to your gestures of love due to the effects of the disease, I can tell you they do see love, and it does make a difference. Now, related to the idea of unconditional love and our children and perhaps even our spouse, there exist traditions in the church related to families. The familial bond and parenting can be difficult and problematic to a child or young individual who battles the disease, even the adults. We all desire the best for our children, even when they are adults. We desire them to become better than we were to the point that we sometimes might get a little overzealous. We don't want them to suffer, have heartache, sin, or do anything that would cause them embarrassment. What I think most often for parents who are trying their best is that we have a symbiotic empathy. We feel their pain, their embarrassment, their heartache, yes, and even their sin. We want to fix it, make it better, heal it, because we are the parents, and that's what parents do. They protect their children and fix things. This is even more pronounced within the church simply because of our focus on families. Now, I have never blamed a parent for an errant child. I have great compassion for this. But I also have blamed myself when my children don't do the things that they should have, or even when they suffer with an illness. I suppose that it is love that somewhat overreaches in some ways. I know that my children are going to make mistakes, suffer heartache, suffer sin, and even suffer things as difficult as mental illness. We all need suffering to aid in our exaltation. In fact, if you look to the scriptures, it would almost seem impossible to obtain exaltation without it. But sometimes I think that we allow the motherly or fatherly love to go beyond the boundaries it was meant to. There are times when we need to allow our children to act, to learn, to experience, and yes, to suffer. When it comes to depression, 
We want to make it better. We want to fix it. How dare a disease affect my child's happiness? The worst feeling in the world as a parent is helplessness. I don't think there's anything that compares. When it comes to someone we love, we would rather suffer than have them suffer. So sometimes as parents, we do things to attempt to fix depression rather than supporting the child with unconditional love and help and those things that depression truly needs to be fixed. One of the major concerns with depression is self-medication, meaning alcohol, drugs, pornography, sexual relationships, becoming less active, so forth. These types of self-medication can come as a shock to parents who have done everything they can to keep their child under the, let's say, protective custody of the gospel. One of the worst things a parent can do is overreact, remove love, remove support, or help from a child. Understand that depression often causes self-medication, and an overreaction to a child's behavior can cause a far worse effect. Now, this doesn't mean that you buy alcohol or support a drug habit or anything of the sort. I'm not saying that. Really, that isn't supporting the child in any meaning of the word support. What it does mean is that there is no condemnation, no retraction of love, no shock or anger when the child admits or confides in you. Your reactions should be to simply ask how you can help. You shouldn't throw up walls of protection right away either to force them to be obedient taking away access to everything, or becoming a helicopter parent. Work with the child to understand how to best provide help with the disease. Simply asking how you can help them is actually one of the best things you can do. This allows them agency, the ability to support. The reason they are telling you is they want help. So provide the help they need and desire. Get them on the pathway to support, treatment, and stability. Eventually, they will ask about the church again if they've strayed. Some problems associated with the disease will likely need to be fixed first before the desire even returns to go back to church, and that even may take some time. The same is true of a spouse or parent, good friend, almost anyone. Ask how you can help them without condemnation. Besides, they have already condemned themselves far more than you could ever do. I know that it hurts when those we love have done things that are inconsistent with gospel teachings. If it helps to remember that it is more disease than the person, which it probably really is, then associate the problems with the illness and not the person. Most of all, provide whatever help you can and they need. If you ask them how you can help and they say, I don't know, which is a real possibility, then you can suggest some options for them, medical help, counseling, spiritual help blessings, and so forth. Now, I covered much of that in a previous podcast called How Can I Help? Now, given some of the traditions in the church, one could see why the disease would remain so hidden. Remember that the disease is also very personal, difficult, and confusing. Science still doesn't exactly know what causes it, and there are no real blood, x-ray, CAT scan types of tests to identify you have the disease. There are subjective questions and a diagnosis. Besides, there's nothing more difficult than to say I have a disease that affects my reality and spirituality. To admit we don't have control, we desire is one of the more difficult things in this accomplished to a lot, difficult things to accomplish in this life. Now, I believe that no one wants to be seen as fragile or incapable, and so they will hide the disease so they will continue to be considered for callings or other opportunities. I did that on a regular basis. 
I often took on callings and other assignments because I didn't want to be treated with kid gloves and sheltered from ward service. I still wanted to be involved. The difficulty was that I could not always fulfill the assignments. I wanted to be involved and be part of the ward as I cycled through the disease, but it didn't always mesh with the assignments I had been given. Now, this can be a difficult needle to thread as a leader who is giving out these assignments. We know that a calling is of great value both to the teacher and the student, but failure and depression are not good roommates. Individuals with depression still need to be involved, and sometimes with what we refer to as the heavier callings. They will just need some good support from counselors and others who know their disease and can step in when things get tough. As I end today's discussion, I wanted to add some personal thoughts regarding why. Why would the Lord allow such a disease to exist among his people and in such great numbers? Why a disease that affects spirituality and happiness to such a degree as one would consider inactivity and even ending life? The easy answer, meaning the easiest to give, but perhaps the most difficult to accept, is that the Lord knows what he's doing. And for those who experience it, the disease is necessary for their salvation and exaltation. Considering the numbers of good, service-oriented, loving members who experience it in the church, the answer that it is necessary for their salvation actually holds a great deal of value and weight in any argument. The Lord wouldn't let good members experience it if it weren't valuable to them and others in his church. I know that right now it is difficult to see how sending a missionary home with depression might be more valuable than serving the entirety of the mission. But I think that we can all admit a limited vision of eternity. Now, given this, there are a few things I have learned, although about depression and the gospel, although they might be more incidental to the argument than what I just mentioned, rather than a body of the argument. Now, I have learned that spirit can work differently with the heart and mind. When a disease affects someone's ability to feel and hear the spirit, the Lord can develop other spiritual senses. I would suppose similar to someone who is blind and whose senses have been developed to compensate. Second, I have learned how much the Lord loves those who he chooses to afflict with this disease. I found the Lord to be full of forgiveness, mercy, grace, and love for those who suffer. He knows of the battle, and he knows that that those with whom he has afflicted have a limited ability to function. One who fights this disease with the Lord will learn great trust and a greater understanding of the effects of the atonement. Number three, empathy. I have difficulty seeing suffering of any kind anywhere. And that is because of the illness. If the Lord desires to teach us empathy, love, and charity, for some reason depression seems to be one of the better better methods to accomplish the task. He can also use those who suffer to teach others similar lessons. There are great benefits when it comes to learning charity and empathy from this disease. Finally, everyone who suffers should know that the Lord truly understands the limitations of the disease and has provided a way back in spite of the difficulties that arise. Parents and others who are helping the mentally ill should understand how quick these individuals will be to respond to the Lord when the illness is lifted. They may at times look to be on another path, but from my experience, that path leads back to the Lord when the trial's over. So that is it for today. Now may the Lord continue to bless you and remember that the Lord requires the fight and then he can do his part. Finally, just a note, if you've found value in these podcasts, let someone know who might benefit. You never know who might just need a little encouragement.
Now, next week's podcast will be about relationships and the power of relationships and mental illness. Until next week.